Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today we continue our look at the book of Genesis, and this message is entitled A Relational Universe. We're looking at how God intended for humans to know wisdom and knowledge and truth, but through relationship with God and one another and through creation, and how we kind of chose to look for that in another place and all the problems that ensued because of that. So how can we move back to a place of intimacy with one another and learning truth in a relational context? So let's head to the talk right now. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. So a, a couple of months ago, Dina was out of town, and it was a Friday night, and I didn't have a gig, and Ezra didn't have anything planned that night, so I'm like, we're going to have a boys' night. So I went to the store, got a couple of steaks, and put them on the grill, and made some mashed potatoes and some Texas toast, and then I said, Ezra, you're 14 years old. It's time for your rite of passage. Tonight, we're going to watch Braveheart together. Because there is nothing more manly than eating steak and watching Braveheart, like a bunch of warrior poets, you know. And we were, so we, <laughs> so I cooked up the steaks and we're sitting there and watching. I forgot how long Braveheart is. It's a long movie. <laughs> that was back before Netflix, you know, would make a whole season out of that. But um, at the beginning of, of Braveheart, there is this, this prologue. And it's narrated by, the, by Robert the Bruce, who, who in, in actual Scottish history ends up becoming the first king of the sovereign nation of Scotland. But he says this, I shall tell you of William Wallace. Historians from England will say that I'm a liar. But history is written like by those who have hanged heroes. Yeah, that's about as far as I can take my Scottish accent before it starts turning into like this amalgam of Spanish and Australian and... Universal, international. <laughs> History is written by those who have hanged heroes. There's a lot of truth in that statement. Or a similar statement. History is written by the victors. If, if you, uh, in, in elementary school or high school or even college, if you ever took an American history class, chances are you learned about Christopher Columbus, the, the Magna Carta, the Pilgrims, uh, George Washington, Declaration of Independence. And we can grow up in this country thinking, that's all there is to American history. But that is history from a certain perspective, right? So if, if you got a hold of a, a Native American history, it'd be a different story, right? And this is really one of the problems with, with, that historians have to grapple with is when we look at ancient text, is like trying to figure out what is true, what is propaganda, what is, you know, just kind of... Uh, trying to prop up the, the leader of the time. So, so if you look at a, a figure like, say, um, Julius Caesar, there's a lot of ancient writings about Judy, Julius Caesar, but a lot of them that actually survived are like the authorized biography, you know? Like uh, 2,000 years from now, like 
you know, if you look back on, on, on this period of time, you know, they're going to have to sift through like, okay, there's, there's a lot of different uh, biographies of different people in our time. But, but looking back at Julius Caesar, you got to figure out like, okay, how much of this is the story that Julius <laughs> wanted told about him because he seems pretty awesome in this story? And how much of this is actual historical stuff? Because history does tend to be written or held on to or, or, or make it to the future because of the people who win. And so it was actually quite common in ancient times, and we still see it to this day, uh, that when one group of people invades another group of people, oftentimes they, they, they tear down all their statues and burn their books and their libraries. Like I remember a few years ago when ISIS... Is it ISIS or Al-Qaeda? One of those terrorist groups uh, in, in um, I believe it was in uh, Afghanistan, there were these, uh, you probably remember seeing these, these ancient Buddhist statues that were just, I mean, had survived for centuries and centuries, and they just blow this stuff up. Or, or ISIS, even in the Middle East, they just start they just destroying stuff in these, in these ancient museums and stuff. But, but part of that is they're trying to take control of the narrative of history. So that's, that's kind of a sidebar. But I say all that. <laughs> I am going somewhere with this. Because when it comes to the Bible, the Bible is one of the few books that survives to the modern world and is still relevant to the modern world that was actually a history book written not by the people in power, but by the people on the margins. You realize that? And by the way, I've said this before, the Bible is not a book. It's a collection of books, okay? And this collection of books spans, it was written over about 1,500 years, uh, different cultures, different times. But one thing that all these books contain is that the Jewish people were never like movers and shakers in the world. Even if you read the Old Testament, the glory days of the, of, of, of the Old Testament, that's like David and King Solomon, I mean, it's not, it's not a, a huge period of time. And so you've got this obscure group of people in the Middle East who are dominated. I mean, even the story, when you look at the, the Jewish people, they, they formed their ethnic identity the first 400 years enslaved in Egypt. That's how they get started. They were enslaved. And then it's not long down the road after David and Solomon, you know, it's the, the, the history of Israel is like two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back. It's a meandering road. The kingdom gets divided. They go into the Babylonian captivity. And then after the Babylonians, it's the um, Persians. And then after that, you know, it's eventually the Greeks. And then you get up to the New Testament, and it's the Romans. I mean, this is not... This is not like a Joel Osteen book, your best life now. Just follow Jesus and everything's going to go great. And you know, you're gonna have, it's, it's kind of the opposite of that. And yet, yet, in spite of this story written by persecuted people who didn't have much power, who were on the margins of the movers and shakers of the whole world, this story has, has made it to our time and is still relevant in our culture. And that's just the Old Testament. You look at the New Testament, man, if, if the Old Testament was an obscure group of people, the New Testament was an obscure sect of that group of people. I mean, in the first century, Christians were, I mean, it wasn't really considered a separate religion. It was just a sect of Judaism who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But it, nobody would have thought that one day this group is going to make an impact on the world in, in a global way. And I think that's a very interesting thing. 
Uh, I was listening to a podcast, um, I think it was last August. This, this, anybody know who Joe Rogan is? Okay, Joe Rogan. He, he was on Fear Factor for a while. I tried out for Fear Factor once. <laughs> I can eat roaches all day. Just don't give me mayonnaise. I'll eat a roach before mayonnaise. Um, <laughs> but Joe Rogan has this podcast. And he, Joe, by the way, if anybody goes and listens to him, he's not a Christian. <laughs> um, but he had two guests on there at once. And these, these guests were very fascinating because one was Sam Harris. And Sam Harris is, is really um, is one of the most intelligent guys I've ever heard speak. He's, he's brilliant. Uh, he's, a, I think, a neuroscientist. Uh, neurologist, neurobiologist, and um, and he's also kind of got the distinction of being one of the leaders of the new atheist movement. Uh, so you've got Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and and uh, Sam Harris. And Sam Harris, really, out of all the new atheists, he's the one that I can like. I can listen to this guy. He's pretty reasonable, and I've actually learned a lot from listening to him. Um, but Sam Harris, in his worldview, uh, if we could remove the Bible and religion from the world, it humanity would be able to flourish. Like, like religion is the thing that's causing all the wars and all the divisions. If we could just get rid of the Bible and religion altogether, then the world could just go on flourishing. Um, but the other guest that, that Joe Rogan had on his show for this conversation, because that's kind of the way Joe does his show. It's like a three-hour conversation, just you know, covering whatever comes up. His other guest was um, University, of, University of Toronto psychology professor Jordan Peterson. And Jordan Peterson, at one point in the conversation, said, you know, Sam, the problem with, with you and many of the new atheists is you, you claim to be Darwinian evolutionist, and Jordan Peterson would consider himself that as well. He says, you claim to, to ascribe to this belief of Darwinian evolution, but you just think you can throw the Bible out and throw religion out as if it hasn't played a role in that evolution. So Jordan Peterson was like, whether you believe in God or not, to just say that this book, when, when there were thousands of other books that, that were written in antiquity that have not survived to the present in a meaningful way, but he's like, you have to contend with this Bible because it has, it has served humanity. There's, otherwise, just from an evolutionary speaking place, if this book didn't serve civilization, it would have ended up like many of the other ancient texts. I mean, nobody's going around talking about Zoroastrianism much anymore or, you know, some of the ancient Hebrew texts or Sumerian texts. There is something in the Bible that actually has relevance on our world. And to think that you can just throw the Bible out or throw, the, throw religion out and that, that, that human flourishing will happen is silly. In fact, when we look at places in the world like the Soviet Union or, or China where they've tried to eradicate religion altogether, it's not been good for people. You don't want to live in a world where the most meaningful things in society just get taken away. Now, I'm, I'm not excusing, like, yeah, the Bible has been used for some horrible things throughout history. <laughs> no doubt. But you can't get around the fact that the Bible is the cornerstone of Western civilization. The ideas that we have about human dignity about individual rights, about morality. That stuff is contained in these stories. And I think that the reason why these stories have made it to the present, I mean, obviously God, but, <laughs> but just even if you even if you're, don't believe in God, 
I think one of the reasons why these stories still tend to speak so powerfully in our world and give us a a way to wrestle through ideas of meaning and justice and life and purpose is because they were written from the margins. The reason that they've survived is that that's one of the things that the the people of Israel were trying to deal with. You know, many Bible scholars have noted that, that even when you come to the the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, it's likely that these stories were actually written down, many of them for the first time during the Babylonian exile. And that, that's an interesting thing. These stories existed, obviously, probably 1,000, 2,000 years before they were actually codified as Scripture. But they got written down when the Jewish people were in the Babylonian exile. They're cut off from their homeland. There's a psalm that says, by the rivers of, of Babylon, we, we just wept. Because the Babylonians said, hey, sing us some of those songs of Zion. And they're like, how can we sing the songs of God in a strange land? We're cut off from our home. We're, we're kicked out of the place. And, and really, when you look at the Garden of Eden, it's that kind of story. How did we get estranged and alienated from our place? Man, that's a story that we all, that's the, that's the most common human story, isn't it? We all feel that there's an alienation and a brokenness. Like even in our best efforts, something is, is askew and it's broken. And these stories are wrestling with that meaning. And I think one of the reasons that, that Genesis in particular, particularly the first few chapters of Genesis, why these things, I, I, I have to tell you that it's, trying to prepare a message for this week after week, it's like trying to drink from a fire hose. I mean, there's like, I'm, I'm re- I've been reading stuff since September, and I'm like, I know I spent like four weeks on Genesis chapter 1, and I could have spent more, and I don't know how long we're going to be on Genesis 2 and 3, because I just feel like there's like a hundred different ways you could go with this. And I think one of those reasons is that these stories, long before they were ever written down, they existed in, in an oral history These were stories that people shared in community, around meals, through songs, through worship. For hundreds and hundreds, maybe even thousands of years before they were ever written down. And I think there was something of the Spirit's work in people. And these stories, you know, over time, they get added to, they get edited, they, through the experience of God within community. And finally, by the time that they get uh, actually written down and, and, and codified as Scripture... That's the reason why Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, like, there are multiple layers of meaning. There's so many different ways you can look at it that are helpful. But probably the least helpful way is to think, oh, they were trying to tell us how old the universe is. That's not the best way to look at it. That's actually the least best way to look at it. Actually, don't even look at it that way. Because nobody was asking those questions. Nobody was asking, like, how old is the universe? Who created it? God created it. Nobody in the ancient world thought that the, God, that, that the ancient world came to being by mere accident. Like, nobody thought that, ever. So I, I know I have to keep saying this over and over, but the worst thing you can do with Genesis 1 and 2 is think that it is answering modern scientific questions. It's not. It was never intended to. And that is an abuse of Scripture to try to get it to even say those things, okay? I don't know. I'm starting to sound hardcore here. But... One of the reasons I think that Genesis is so powerful is because when we see these stories of a seven-day creation, a good God, when we see the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life, the Garden of Eden, Adam, Eve, all these things, 
There's so many layers of meaning in them because they're archetypal figures. They, they, they represent some of the biggest things that humanity faces uh, in, in relation to suffering, in relation to God, in relation to our, our own relationships. So, <laughs> all right. I spent half the message on the intro. Uh, we're going to get to Genesis 2. Uh, on the front of your bulletin, starting in verse 4, it says, When Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens, and by the way, I'm using John Golden Gay, who's one of the, his translation of this, he's one of the foremost uh, Old Testament scholars, uh, professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. I, I'm using his translation because he pulls out some of the distinctions, because when it says, and... Um, in, in a typical translation, it will just say God, but he notes that, that, that this is the first time we come in contact with the name Yahweh. So, when Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens, and no bushes were on the earth yet, and no wild plants had grown up, because Yahweh God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no human being to serve the ground, though a stream would come up from the earth and water the surface of the earth, Yahweh God shaped a human person with dirt from the ground and blew into his nostrils living breath, and the human person became a living being. You know something that's cool to meditate on? The Old Testament, the word ruach. Everybody say that. Ruach. That means breath, but it also means spirit. In the New Testament, the word is pneuma. If you get pneumonia, has a, the, the respiratory thing. Pneuma also is a, is a similar word that means breath and it means spirit. And so we, that's one of the problems even in Bible translations. Sometimes they're like, well, do we call this thing at the, in Genesis, is it a wind moving over the waters or is it the spirit moving over the waters or is it the breath of God moving over the waters? But, but we see that, that man was created, formed out of the dirt, but he wasn't living until God breathes life into him. There is something of God put into man that makes man alive. That's, that, that's the part of God within all of us, and that's what animates us and gives us life. Verse 8, Yahweh God planted the garden in Eden in the east and put there the human being he had shaped. Yahweh God made to grow up from the ground every tree that is pleasing in the sight for good food and the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the good and bad knowledge tree. There was a river coming out of Eden to water the garden and from, the, and from there dividing to become four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It was one going around the entire area of Havilah where the gold is. That Havilah. The gold of that area is good. Pearl and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It was the one going around the entire area of Ethiopia. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it was the one going east of Assyria, and the fourth was the Euphrates. Yahweh God took the human being and placed him in Eden Garden to serve it and look after it. Look after it. Yahweh God commanded the human being from every tree in the garden you may definitely eat, but from the good and bad knowledge tree you are not to eat, because on the day you eat from it you will definitely die. And Yahweh God said, it is not good for the human, to be, human being to be on his own. I will make him a helper suitable for him. 
Yahweh God shaped from the ground every creature of the wild and every bird in the heavens and brought them to the human being to see what he would call them. And whatever the human being called a living being, that was its name. The human being gave names to all the cattle, to the birds in the heavens, and to all the creatures of the wild. But for the human being, he did not find a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God made a coma fall on the human being so that he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Yahweh God built the rib that he had taken from the human being into a woman, and he brought her to the human being. The human being said, well, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman because for man this one was taken. Hence, a man leaves his father and his mother and sticks to his woman, and they become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the man and his woman, but they felt no shame. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann notes about verses 15 through 17. He says, These three verses together provide a remarkable statement of anthropology. Human beings before God are characterized by vocation, permission, and prohibition. The primary human task is to find a way to hold these three facets of divine purpose together. Any two of them without the third is surely to pervert life. It is telling and ironic that in popular understanding of this story, little attention is given the mandate of vocation or the gift of permission. The divine will for vocation and freedom has been lost. The God of the garden is chiefly remembered as the one who prohibits, but the prohibition only makes sense in terms of the other two. The balance and juxtaposition of the three indicates that there is a subtle discernment of human destiny there. What we see in the garden is that the first human being, who we later call Adam, is put there in this garden And he's given permission to do anything in the garden, anything that he wants within the garden. Secondly, he's given a vocation, and that is to tend the garden, to look after it, to rule on God's behalf. The third is the prohibition, and that prohibition is only one thing. You can do anything you want in this whole garden except eat for that tree. The day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And in this this we find the the, the three keys that, that... that, that humans need to kind of survive. We need freedom, we need a vocation, and we do need some sort of boundary. And we see that in, in the beginning. But what we also see is that, particularly in the Garden of Eden, we begin to see the emergence of, of how connected everything is. This God that, that exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, throughout eternity before there ever was in us, divine community creates us and he sets us in a relational universe and science bears this out i mean whether you study biology ecology quantum physics we can we can be assured that everything in the universe is connected like no, nothing exists isolated everything is internet, intricately connected and when it comes to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, <laughs> as much as I have read different people talking about this tree, nobody comes up with a good reason of why God put it there, other than maybe God had to put it there just so that we could have free will. 
We could actually have the choice of choosing, you know, if there wasn't the option to disobey God, then, then we wouldn't really truly be free. And that sounds as good of a, a, an argument as any, but Genesis doesn't tell us. It just says there's this tree. And if you eat of it, it's going to ruin everything. <laughs> Why did God put it? Genesis doesn't seem bothered with answering that. But I don't, as I said, I said this last week, it's not that God doesn't want us to know wisdom and knowledge. It's just that it has to come by being in the right context, by finding our place in God's relational universe, by finding our vocation, uh, avoiding the, the, the thing that God prohibits, not, not reaching out for wisdom another way, but finding our place and, and letting that knowledge come through it. So when we look at when God puts Adam in the garden... And, and starts bringing animals. You know, before God put, brings the animals before Adam, he said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. And then he starts bringing animals. And I think this is a, a, a very cool way to understand how God intended humans to learn knowledge. We see the picture of it. So Adam's sitting there, and, uh, you know, animals come by. So I'm, I'm going to name this an aardvark, and and I'm going to name this one an antelope, and I'm going to name this one a cat, and uh, this one that has all the leftover things just piled together. We're going to call that a platypus. And uh, but as Adam is naming the ad- animals, something begins to occur to him. These things seem to come in pairs. <laughs> it's like they all got someone like them to hang out with. And it starts developing this, this intense longing within Adam. He's like, I like this cat. I like this elephant. But it, it, it doesn't seem like me. And then we see God form Eve. So Adam is formed out of the dirt. And God forms Eve out of Adam's side. And I don't think that is something we need to gloss over at all. That's significant. Eve is not formed out of Adam's feet. <laughs> He's not formed, she's not formed out of his head. She's, it's, it's a lateral move. Because, unfortunately, Genesis chapter 2 and 3 have been used to really keep women down um, for a very long time. But I don't think that's because these scriptures are saying anything that should keep women down. Um, w- one reason is because Eve is called a helper here. I want to say something about being a helper. We, I, I tend, when I think of helper, I think of, yeah, my little kids help me out and stuff like that. But you know what the term helper is used to describe more than anything in the Bible? God. So God is called a helper, all right? So, uh, and it doesn't say that Adam wasn't supposed to help Eve either. It just said that Eve would be created to help Adam. But there is something in their togetherness that together in their masculinity and femininity Together they reveal the image of God. Because God, after all, we call God Father. That's more of a relational term. But God is not masculine or feminine. God is both. And, and there is a sense, and Genesis 1 even says that, in the, in the beginning God created human beings in his image. In his image he created them male and female. And so there is a sense that when we are, and, and, and I think it is significant that Eve is created out of Adam's side because there is a connection between male and female that, that is, it's hardwired. It's, it's, not, it's not like I'm going to create another creature out of the dirt. No, this, this is coming out of you. This is bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. 
Adam wakes up from his coma, and he's like, Foxy lady. He's like, this is a lot better than that dog. <laughs> and that cat. I, finally, I found bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But I think when we look at this process of Adam naming the animals, we see how God intended for humans to come to wisdom. It is through fulfilling their vocation within the boundaries of God's good garden where everything is permissible and they are free as they would fulfill their vocation under God, in God's boundaries, they would learn wisdom and truth the way that they could handle it. Otherwise, like Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. My wife started telling me a few years ago I look like Jack Nicholson. I was like, oh. And then she said, yeah, like the version from About Schmidt. (laughs) Not so cool. We We were not intended to handle wisdom and knowledge divorced from the context of relationality. It is in relationship that we learn truth in a way that can bring life. That's the way God set it up. It's a universal, it is a relational universe. So, we have Adam and Eve in the garden, and I know I covered a bit of this last week. We're covering it again, um, just from a different angle. So, when Adam and Eve decide that they, instead of learning wisdom and knowledge through relationship with God in the way that God intended things in the beginning, when they decide to go around that and pursue wisdom and try to be like God apart from God, what is the first thing that happens? Fear enters the picture. They go from a place of security, a place of relational connection. And and in the word interesting in the beginning, it says they were naked and they weren't afraid. You know, being naked in front of another human being, that's a big deal, right? Can I get an amen? That's, that's what somebody's going to tweet. Don't tweet that. <laughs> being naked in front of an, another human being, that's a big deal. And, and, and that's why, you know, when you get married and, like, you know, you're, you're sharing everything, but, like, all of a sudden you've got this other person you're going to be naked with. And that's, that's a... I'm sorry if I'm getting PG-13 here. I'll, I'll, try, I'll try not to go very far down this thing. But there is a sense that, that what we see with Adam and Eve in the beginning is there was nothing in between them. There was pure intimacy. No more shame. or No, no shame. No insecurity. They could just be themselves. And what's the first thing that happens after they become self-aware, self-conscious by eating this fruit? Now it's like, oh, my gosh, we're naked. <laughs> We've been naked this whole time. <laughs> Look at us. And, and they begin to sow fig leaves to hide from each other and to hide from God. And God walks out in the cool of the day and he says, Adam, Eve, where are you? And they're like, we're hiding over here in the bushes. And God's like, why are y'all hiding? Because we just figured out we're naked. Why didn't you tell us? He's like, who told you you were naked? Have you been eating of that tree? 
But isn't that an interesting thing? The first thing that we see is that they begin to feel insecure, self-conscious, ashamed, and they got to start hiding. And they start they sow fig leaves and start to cover themselves up. And I'm so thankful that that they you know that you know that covering up and trying to hide insecurity and stuff that that was just back in Genesis, and we've moved beyond that as humanity, right? <laughs> No, now we've just come up with more elaborate fig, fig leaves, right? You know, it's Photoshop and Instagram filters. And man, look at how charmed and amazing my life is. It's like a, a travel magazine. I'm just awesome. Or, or, or maybe we hide behind the letters we put behind our name. Hide behind the car we drive, the house we live in, the clothes we wear our reputation, our giftings. We use all of these things to, to keep people from actually seeing the real us because we're terrified. Because when people see that person, it feels vulnerable, it feels exposed, it feels like we're going to die. That's the first fruit of, of eating of this tree. That's the first thing that begins to happen. They feel afraid. The next thing we see, they start accusing each other and scapegoating each other. This woman you gave me, I mean, she was, she was all hot and everything, but she tricked me. And the woman's like, oh, this snake, this talking snake over here. And it's, it, it, now they're, they're, they're actually disconnected from one another. And now even the knowledge that they had, it's not any good anymore. When the first humans decide to rebel against God, the one command that God gave them, we see fear, shame, insecurity, blame shifting, and ultimately hiding from God and from one another. But still, even after this, I think it's so interesting that when you come to Genesis chapter 4, which we'll get to in the fall probably, uh, (laughs) Genesis chapter 4, it says, and Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Adam knew her. Isn't that an interesting way to talk about the sexual union as knowledge? That's relational knowledge. That's, that's knowledge the way God intended it. What a picture of intimacy. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. And you, you actually see that as a term used over and over in the Old Testament that, that, to talk about the sexual union as, as a way of knowledge. That is relational knowledge. And that's really, I think, what we get a picture of, of the way even the sexual union was intended to be. It was not intended to be, you know, we live in, a, in, a, in an age where it's so, you know, pornography has become so profuse in culture and, and just even in, in advertisements and the way that we, we talk about sex. It, it's, it's, it's something cheap. It's something surfacy. It's something that's really based on fig leaves more than actual intimacy, but what we see in the original garden, what we see in God's intended purpose is that, that even the sexual union, it would not be shame and insecurity. It would be a, a place of knowledge and intimacy. Come on. Can I get an amen? I won't say much more about that. I will close today by just... <laughs> well. Well. I may say one more thing. <laughs> you know, when, when Dean and I first got married, I wrote this song for her called Daisy. It's the kind of song you write when you're young and in love. 
You're a daisy in the cracked sidewalk, like a dream on a winter's day. Wrapped in ribbons around pure white snow, this gift I've been given this day, I will know. Oh, I put no in there. Ooh, prophetic. And the rest of the verses have to do with the kinds of things you say when you're in love. Like, I'll climb the highest mountain. You know, I'll, I'll do whatever for you. I can do it. I'm feeling it. You know, a couple of weeks later, I'm like, dang, there's going to be a lot more to this marriage than just having sex and paying the bills. <laughs> uh, it, it, got, it got very tough very quickly. But I think in the last 10 years, we got to the point in our marriage where, you know, I think, you know, there's times in your life, every, every, every human being, there will be a time in your life where you, oh, I feel attracted to this other person. What is that? You know, and you might think, oh, what would it be like to be with that other person? But anytime I get hit with some kind of idea like that, I'm like, let's, let's, let's think it. Let's think about this for a minute. Let's move past all the, the butterflies in your stomach and the long phone calls or emails or chats or whatever you're going to do. And let, let's move down to now you've moved in the same house together and you're living day to day and you have to see each other naked and, and, it's, and you're not trying to now. Um, and, and you're having to, you know, do all the regular things that normal people do. Let's think about that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's taken years to get to a point of... of being at peace, it's, it's just, that's a, that's a lot of hard work. It's like tending a garden. It's like pulling weeds. It is like taking care of something. I'm like, yeah, I, I'll run that fantasy about, you know, two minutes. I'm like, okay, I'm done. I, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. I'm perfectly happy. Because there is actually, and, and I, I say that because I want to I share some words that I wrote about Dina. I wrote a song back in the fall. I haven't written many songs since that first one uh, that, that we had on our wedding day. But here's a different song, you, a different kind of song that I wrote about her, a love song, after 20 years of marriage. I'm grateful for the fire that burns away the dross, for the struggle of dying that gives way to rebirth, for the miscommunications that lead us into truth, for the substance of love beyond the ideals of youth. I'm thankful for a friend who loves me like no other, that after all these years still finds treasures to discover, a love that finds the good in me when my soul is laid bare, and a warm embrace that holds my heart in the face of fear. We live out on this edge between insanity and order. Our happiness is found somewhere out there on the borders between holding something precious and letting it all go, between the mystery of being and all that we think we know. Baby, you're one of the good ones. You're the best one I know. Baby, you're one of the good ones. I ain't never going to let you go. Oh. It's not so much of a romantic song, right? But this is the kind of song you sing after 10 years of being through the fire and struggles together. And I can tell you, I wouldn't trade this for the love I had 20 years ago. Because this love comes out of knowledge, relational knowledge. It comes out of intimacy. It comes out of the fire. It comes out of disappointment and trials and messing things up and wanting to leave each other occasionally and getting aggravated and all that stuff, but keep coming back together and knowing each other. John eight thirty one, and I will drive it on home here in three minutes. 
Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know, when Jesus was saying that, he wasn't saying, If you just have a bunch more Bible studies, you're going to know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you just keep going to classes, you're going to know the truth and the truth. No, he says, if you continue in my teachings, if you live in what I've taught you, what did Jesus teach? If, if you look at the book of John going up to this verse, Jesus teaches a lot of stuff like love other people the way that I've loved you. That's his teaching, by the way. Love God, love people. That's the Jesus stuff. If you continue to live your life in a way that looks at the human dignity of other people, that shows care for yourself and others, that, that, that walks in humility, that walks in compassion, that exercises mercy, that speaks the truth in love. If you continue to do those things over the time, you will know the truth. But you know the word translated know here? It's not intellectually. This is not stuff you're going to pick up in a book. You will experience the truth. That's a word for experiential truth. Because book knowledge ain't going to do you a whole lot of good in your life if it's not combined with experience. I'm, I'm a big fan of books, by the way. But just reading books ain't going to change anything in your life. Knowledge, intellectual, ain't going to do anything in your life. But if you continue in the teachings of Jesus, loving God, loving people, if you continue in that day after day, you will experience a truth that will set you free. You'll experience freedom. And, and in, in many ways, and I, I said this last week about Jesus, in many ways, Jesus is the tree of life. He's the one that, 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 that actually gets us back into the garden, gets us back into that relational concept. So now we are learning from God. We're learning wisdom and knowledge from God, but it is through relationship. It is through loving other people, through caring for other people, through loving God, through uh, experiencing God's love in our own hearts. As we do that over time, it brings true freedom in our life. And I'll tell you, even my marriage... I mean, I, I, I laugh that we even do a marriage class here because I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if anybody needs to follow us, but we're still here. <laughs> and I keep wondering, like, is this going to be the last marriage class we do? You know, are, are we going to be able to do this next year? Because, I mean, really, when I say we live out on the, that edge between insanity and order, it's like it, it feels sometimes like, I mean, we even had a fight earlier this week. And I was like, it was my fault, mostly. <laughs> okay. okay, it was my fault all the way. <laughs> but it was a bad fight and it was like Dina's like I don't know if I'm coming home tonight <laughs> I'm like well I'll eat alone and <laughs> and I did <laughs> but I can tell you in the commitment to our relationship with one another, in our, in our love for God, in our trying to live out the teachings of Jesus over and over, I think the way that this, this has formed us is that it keeps bringing us back around. And we can put our own pride and our own intellect and all those things down, and we can come back together and say, look, this is the main thing that's important. We've got to get this right for our thriving because there is something, when we get in alignment, when we take out the, 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 the shame, the insecurity, the things that separate us from one another and from our own hearts, when we bring that to the light and we live in the light with each other, now we begin to experience freedom. Now we begin to experience life. Now, as a couple, we begin to bear the image of God, masculine and feminine, together. And that's hot stuff. 
All right, I've, I've said too much. All right, get up on your feet. <laughs> Lord, I just, I just want to bless everybody here this morning. I bless you in the name of Jesus. May you have the grace to live out the teachings of Jesus, to live a life of love and compassion and mercy and truth. May you live that out this week. May you be aware of where you sit in a relational universe. May you pay attention to the Spirit in your relationship with your own heart, with your loved ones, with your co-workers. And may, as you follow the teachings of Christ, may you learn what true wisdom is. May you learn what true freedom is. May you learn to see reality as it is. And not filtered through your own wounds and hurts and discouragement and depression. May you see the light and by the light of Christ. Amen. God bless (laughs) y'all. And if anybody needs prayer, come on up to the front. We'll gather around and pray for you. God bless. See you next weekend.